Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles now to John chapter 14. Our scripture reading will come from chapters 14, verse 15 through 31, as we are continuing our study here in the book of John. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. John chapter 14, sometimes called the comfort chapter of the book of John. The Lord Jesus encourages his disciples here who are in the upper room. In the Last Supper, before his betrayal and his crucifixion, says these words in verse 15. If you love me, You will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for your precious and eternal word. As your word has declared that the grass withers and the flowers fade, 
but the word of our God stands forever. We give you thanks for the reading of it, the hearing of it. We pray, God, grant to us a heart of obedience to it. And Father, may you open the eyes of our heart that we might see once again great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in Cambodia, I had the opportunity to get to know a missionary who was there. He and his wife have no children of their own, but they have adopted a number of them, about eight so far. There are many orphans in Cambodia because of a dictator in years past, many children. So when it came time many years ago for an opportunity for a furlough for these missionaries, they had a real struggle because they went to the State Department to try to get a visa in order to take these children along with them back to the United States on furlough. But their request was denied. The request was denied because technically they could not. They could not adopt. It's illegal. Why? Because of the fear of human trafficking. UNICEF, in about 10 years ago, estimated that over 1 million children are trafficked every year. So there was a struggle. There was a struggle for these missionaries who were parents to leave. And they had to decide what they were going to do because they shared with me these children had been promised before, perhaps abandoned for sure, and convincing their children that they were going to leave for a number of months and then come back, something that would be a tremendous challenge, would bring tremendous anxiety among the kids, would bring worry and fear. Oh, at least one would need to stay behind, if not both. But that kind of fear, that kind of fear of being abandoned, of being left behind as orphans all alone, would have been the same as the fear that these particular disciples faced at that time, the fear of being left by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fear of fending for themselves, of providing for their own needs, the needs that Jesus had provided for all of these past three years, the fear of having to work and do all of the things that Jesus was to do without a blueprint of someone who had gone before them. Tremendous fear, tremendous anxiety was there in that upper room. would be as if God, after three years of you be, being a Christian, put you in the middle of nowhere and called you to plant a church to teach the Bible and to disciple others. You'd probably run for help. Here, these particular disciples were in that same boat, that same boat. Jesus was about to leave. But here in this particular chapter, in this section of text, Jesus promises them help. He promises them advice. He promises them a teacher far better than they would realize, far better. As you recall, this particular chapter the context is that these disciples were in the upper room. They had come to an end of three years of ministry, following and listening to Jesus, Jesus who provided for them, Jesus who taught them. And this was the last evening that they would spend with him because this evening the Lord Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. The next day he would suffer and he would die on the cross for sins. 
And so you can imagine that during this Last Supper, they were listening intently to everything that Jesus would say. He commanded them to love one another just as he loved them, as he had modeled for them in washing their feet. But understandably, they were fearful and anxious, even with those words. So in chapter 14, verse 1, he commands them, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart stop being shaken by the fear, but trust God. Believe God. Believe and trust Christ. Why? Because he says to them, he's going away to prepare a place for them. In his father's house, there are many rooms. He's using an analogy of a betrothal. When a bridegroom would go away and prepare a home for the bride, he would later on come and take that bride home to be with him. After all of these years of ministry, he comforts them with those words because he had been recently talking about his suffering, his death, his departure, where they would not be able to follow him. But he has a place for them. He will come to take them home. Last week, we were reminded by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing on, that they would know, they would know the Father. They would do greater works and extent than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And whatever they asked for that was according to the will of God, Jesus would answer and they would receive. And just like a bridegroom would lavish his bride with all sorts of gifts during that interim period before the marriage ceremony, Jesus lavishes them with these promises. You'll know God. Whatever you ask for, you're going to receive. And also, you're going to do great things. You're going to do great things far greater in extent And if that's not enough, he continues on in this particular passage to remind them of his love and his care for them. The true disciples, they not only will love God, but God will love them. Christ will love them. And that's the first thing that he reiterates to them, that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit who's a helper to them, and they will receive supernatural peace to calm their troubled hearts. And these words of comfort, as I shared with you, sometimes chapter 14 has been called the comfort chapter, is to these worried and anxious and nervous disciples whose Savior is about to depart, that he is going to provide all of these things for them. And the first thing here in this text they needed to be reminded of is that God will love them. Christ will love them. Here, he says in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later on, he will reiterate that if a person loves him, God will love them. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's an application to all believers. Because the one main test, the one main test in the New Testament of whether or not one loves the Lord Jesus is the test of obedience. It is the test of obedience. That is the real test for whether or not one loves God. It is not sentimentalism. It is not excitement for God. 
It is not toleration. It is not emotionalism. It is obedience. That is the test of what, whether or not one loves God. And that obedience stems out of a heart that loves Christ that manifests itself in obedience. It is not external obedience that is wooden, rigid, and legalistic that stems not from the heart. The test of whether or not one loves God is obedience that flows from a love for the Lord Jesus. And this is immensely practical because in our world, in our culture, love is defined in many, many different ways. Love is defined if one is accepting of everything lock, stock, and barrel. Love is defined in our culture as tolerance of sin. Love is defined as sentimentality or romance. But if a person chooses not to tolerate sin, if a person chooses to speak out for what is right, if a person chooses to point out false teaching, many times they're called as unloving. They're spoken of in ways that are unloving. But in the New Testament, the test of love for God is whether or not one lives in obedience. Whether or not one lives in obedience. The idea of love and obedience is expanded. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, back in the, near the end of the scriptures, the book of 1 John, also penned by the Apostle John in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we will be looking at verse 3. Now, you may recall in the book of 1 John, the epistle there, John warns the believers about false teachers who would come into the church. False teachers had come into the church, and John wants those who are children of God to be able to discern who is a true disciple of Christ and who is not. Who is a true believer and who is not. And he says here, basically, there are two characteristics. One is righteous living, and the second is a love for the brethren. Righteous living and a love for the brethren, a life that is not characterized by worldliness of sin, but is characterized by righteous living, and secondly, in the epistle, a love for one another. So in relationship to righteous living, the Apostle John writes these words in chapter 2, verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him. How do you know if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? If, verse 3, we keep his commandments. If you want to be able to tell for yourself whether or not you have come to know the Lord Jesus, it is not by merely a saying, it is not by merely a prayer. It is not a test of whether or not, oh, I believe, by somebody who says they believe. No, it is by the test of obedience, if we keep his commandments. Again, in verse 4, chapter 2, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, it's the old adage that actions speak louder than words, that obedience is the proof of the pudding. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. How do you know if you're in him? By what? One who keeps his word. Again, contrary, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. One who says that they do ought to walk in that same manner. 
One who obeys his word is one who has come to know him. One who doesn't obey is a liar. There are all sorts of words that John uses to describe one who does not know God. One who does not have a relationship with God. One who merely talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk is not a true believer. They are not a Christian. Rather, the Apostle John points out to the fact there are many who will say they do, but they are liars. The truth is not in him. They have not come to know the Savior. You know, I've lived in the South for a little bit while I was attending seminary and lived in the Bible Belt, and everybody there pretty much would say that they're a believer. The question is, what does their life speak of? What does their life speak of? Remember the two greatest commandments? Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord Jesus is answering a, a lawyer, and, he, and the lawyer answers his question for the Lord Jesus, and he says, the answer to the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments are to love God and love others. And John reiterates this in a different way. Again, in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Remember, there is the righteous living and there is the love for the brethren. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God. What is the love of God? that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. A person cannot say that they love God and stand and sing of the love of God and sing, I love you, Lord, and live a life in which they continuously display a disobedience to God. And furthermore, the scriptures say they are not burdensome. The attitude behind obedience is not burdensome. Why? Because the desire of the heart has changed within the life of a believer. The desire of the heart has changed, wanting to please God. When you love someone, you have no problem doing something for someone. Remember? When you first started dating your spouse, maybe? Money wasn't that big of an issue. You'd spend or whatever you do. You love yourself. Think of how much time you spend in the bathroom looking at yourself, making yourself feel good. You spend money on yourself. You spend money on your children. When they're sick, you love them. You have no difficulty taking them to the doctor even though it costs money. You buy medicine for them. You love them. You provide for whatever they need. I remember when I was sick as a little boy, I wouldn't mind so much. My dad would go to the pharmacy, and not only would he bring home medicine for me, which would help me, but he'd always bring me home a comic book. It was never a burden. If you're someone who is so constricted in following God, and yet you say you love God, then the problem is not with God. The problem is not with His Word. The problem is not with the interpretation of the Scriptures. Oftentimes, the problem is us in our own heart. It's indicative of the condition of a person's heart, whether or not it's burdensome or not. It's either that there is sin reigning in the heart of a believer, which 
causes one not to desire and feel burdened by it, or often it is because one doesn't know God. One doesn't know God. One has no relationship with God. They're not going to want to. They'll feel constricted. They'll feel constricted by all of the things that God desires. But when you love God, your heart changes, and God gives you a heart that desires to know Him. Now, back to John 14. Jesus reiterates that characteristic of a person who loves God. Verse 21. He who loves my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do you want to know if you love God? Ask yourself, is your heart's inclination to follow God? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. God will love them. I will love them and will disclose myself to him. That's what Jesus promises the one who loves God, they will receive the love of God as well in a special way. God loves them. Jesus loves them. Now, the fundamental idea here is that Jesus changes hearts to love him, to love God, and love is reciprocated by the Father and by the Son. And Jesus would reveal himself in that saving knowledge of him. But the disciples, like many of us many times, scratch our heads and don't quite get it. Judas here, he doesn't quite get it. Still stuck on this idea that Jesus is going to bring a physical kingdom, that Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, that he's going to set up a kingdom here. And if that's the case, why wouldn't Jesus reveal himself to everyone? That's what precipitates the question here in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, if you're going to set up this kingdom, I get that, and everybody will see you. How are you going to do this and disclose yourself to us and not to the world? What's going on? But Jesus was speaking in a spiritual sense that he was going to disclose himself, that he would reveal himself to those that he has chosen to save. Judas, by the way, here is Judas, the son of James, not the Judas that was the Judas Iscariot. This Judas, the son of James, is also called Thaddeus, Thaddeus in the book of Matthew. So when you see the name Judas, oftentimes in the Gospel of John, it'll have a qualification Judas, not Iscariot, Judas, the son of James, or Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. It'll differentiate the two between the two Judases. But Jesus here is speaking. Spiritually speaking, he will disclose himself to them. Those who love Christ, those who love the Lord, those who display that by the keeping of his word, they will have the presence and the love of the Father. They will have the presence and the love of God. They will have that relationship, that knowledge of God. And he comforts them with those words. Jesus answers, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 23, My father will love him. We will come to him, make our abode with him. He who does not love me, does not keep my commandments, does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He comforts them with that. You'll know God. God will love you. I will love you. And I will come and dwell with you. Jesus 
is always near to his people. His promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what your difficulty may be, God is with you if you know him. Secondly, Jesus comforts his disciples by telling them that they will receive the help of the Holy Spirit. They will receive the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give another helper and he may be with you forever. Now, as self-sufficient as we may think we are, we are not. We need the help of God. Christ promises his disciples he will send them another helper. That particular word comes from the word parakletos, a Greek word which is made of two parts. Para meaning alongside of, and kletos, kaleo means to call. One who is called alongside of. Para, you might hear that in parable. One who is alongside of. Uh, but one who is called alongside of. It can be translated as a comforter. It can be translated as a helper. In either case, Christ was going to send them a helper, someone who was going to help them. He wasn't going to leave them alone. In addition to that, he was going to send them another helper, and that's an important word as well. Because there are two common Greek words for another. One is heteros, heteros, meaning another that is similar. Another that is similar. That's what one word that is sometimes translated into another means. If I were to ask you, would you be able to go get me a cup of coffee from Starbucks? You might come back with a latte. You might come back with a frappuccino or a drip or Americano or whatever it may be. Some type of coffee drink might not be what I was looking for, but you might bring me back something similar to that. You're not going to bring me back a juice box. You're going to bring me back a cup of coffee. But another Greek word is different, alas. And that is the word that is used here. And that is important to know because it means one that is identically the same. The disciples would have had a flag go up in their mind. He is saying, I'm going to bring you a lost helper. That means exactly the same. If I asked you to bring me a frappuccino light with no whip, a java chip, you would bring me exactly that. That is what Jesus means. He's going to bring back or send another helper that is identically the same. Not just any old helper. Not some other person who's a human being. Not somebody who's worse than no help at all. He's going to give them a helper that is like him. Identical in power. Abilities to empower them for the ministry that he will bring to them. And that, furthermore, he may, the text says, he may be with you forever. He may be with you forever. He will not leave. He abides with you and be, will be in you. A tremendous comfort. He wasn't, he wasn't teaching Arminianism, where they're like, uh, hmm, it might be with you if you're good. You know, if you're not good, he might leave. No, the Holy Spirit will come. He will dwell with you. He will be just like you. I am sending him to you. And when I go, I will send him. And you will not be left alone. Because when you're lost and you're alone, there is great fear. But he's going to guide you. And he's going to comfort you. And he's going to come. And you will not be alone. I remember when I was 18, I was... 
out of the country on my own doing missions work. I was in another country, and I'd never been out of the country on my own before. My language skills were not all that great, and I wasn't with a team. I went to meet some missionaries in the place that I was going to, and I was going to spend almost a couple of months there, people I didn't know. And when you're in a place and you can't communicate, when you're in a place and you don't know anyone, when you're in a place that their laws are much different than yours, it is a fearful thing to be alone. It's rather scary if you're lost. And when I did meet up with someone, anybody who was from the United States, I didn't care where they came from, boom, they were my friend. Because why? I could talk with them. I could share with them. Even if I met them in a store, I was happy. I didn't know where Chicago was or whatever. They were my friend. Comforting feeling when somebody is there to help you. Not only would Jesus send someone, he would send a comforter. He would send someone who was very much like him, that would have the same power as him, to be with them forever, who would not leave. And that is the spirit of truth, the text says, whom the world cannot receive. The world cannot receive because it does not see him, verse 17, does not know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And not only be in you, but be in you forever. See, those who don't know Christ do not have the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 tells us the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He doesn't have the Spirit of God to comfort, to help him. But the Spirit of God comes to comfort and encourage us, and to guide us into what is true. Practically speaking, that is so very comforting and important. Sunday school, we've been talking about biblical counseling, how the Spirit of God helps one to take the truth of the Word of God that is given to them. The Spirit of God reminds them of what is true and helps them to think along the things of God, helps and empowers them to live in obedience to those things transforming their heart to have a heart that loves the Lord Jesus, to help counsel and encourage the Spirit of God working in someone's life to have the right desires, even though we may be weak, which we are. The Spirit of God comes to be with us when we have come to know the Savior. And that is a comforting thought, which Jesus reiterates to them in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And even though you won't see me in a little while, you will see me because I will live. He reiterates that same thing. I'm going to be gone, but I will come back for you. I will come back for you because I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. The Holy Spirit will come. Isn't that tremendous? Because the Spirit of God will be and is with us now. He indwells, He teaches, He comforts, He encourages. What a guarantee. He seals you. 
He seals you and guarantees that you are a child of God. You've been marked out for those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. have been saved and are always saved. Thirdly, not only will God the Father love us, not only has God the Father given to us the Spirit to guide and comfort and guard us, but thirdly, we'll receive supernatural peace. Supernatural peace, verse 27. Peace. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Everyone wants peace. Everyone wants peace. According to the Society of International Law in London, states that in the past 4,000 years, there have only been 268 years of peace, despite peace treaties. In the last three centuries, there have been 286 wars on the continent of Europe alone. It has also been estimated that in the past five and a half millennia, 5,500 years, more than 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. More than 14,000 wars have been fought with a combined total of some 4 billion casualties of war. That concept of peace, that desire for peace, is much broader than international war. People want peace. The language of peace is part of our conversation, isn't it? I mean, you go home and the dog is barking and your kids are climbing on you and you feel like, I'd like some, what, peace and quiet. To be refreshed and maybe have some peace with your past, you make peace. You want your local law enforcement to keep the peace when there are rowdy folks outside. You want them to stop. You Come to the end of your life, and what do we call it? That they might rest in peace. Everyone wants peace. One common, one English lexicon defines the New Testament word for peace, which is arene, as the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with his earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. The soul is at peace, peace with God. That's what one key avenue is, having peace with God, having peace with your maker, having positional peace. There's also the other avenue of experiential peace. Without that relationship with God, you see there would be enmity, not only with God, but with others that is continuing on. The Bible says there is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 48:22 There's not only that there is that experience that we all desire Paul emphasizes that in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about peace chapter 2 verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus he says you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Before you were far off, he's speaking of the Gentiles, you were far away, those who don't know Christ, including those who are Jews who are unsaved, I guess, but primarily here the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace. We made both groups, 
both groups into one, speaking of the Jews and Gentiles, breaking down that barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Peace is what God offers. A supernatural peace that you can be right with God. And that true peace comes when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Because your world might be collapsing all around you, but in your heart you're experiencing the peace of God. That's what Philippians 4 reminds us of. Philippians 4, a very well-known passage in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Do you remember? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray and we ask of God, rather than being anxious, we cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And when we have set our minds on the things above, as Isaiah 26, 3, He who the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, he whose mind is stayed on thee. When your mind is fixed on the things of God and on God himself, God grants peace. That's how we experience peace. But only for those who know the Savior, Jesus gives us that peace. That peace is supernatural. That peace that Jesus continues to point to, that he promises these disciples, he will give them peace. And he explains that, you heard I said to you, I go away, I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And he continues on, and he's told them these things, so that when it happens, they might believe. They might believe, trusting in God. The world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father has commanded to me. He lived in complete obedience to Him. And His reminder to the disciples was that they will see. They will see things from a heavenly perspective. From His perspective. And they will rejoice. Don't be worried because all of these things will come to pass. And everything will work out. They just need to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and they will have that peace that Christ promises to give. The question for us is, do you have peace? Do you live in peace? No matter what is happening around you? You know, in 1860, there was a man who lived for the Lord. Many of you recognize his name. His name is Horatio Spafford. And his wife's name was Anna, and they had five children. They had five children, but the youngest, his name was Horatio as well. Four daughters and a girl. The daughters' names were Annie and Maggie, Bessie, Tanetta, and there was little Horatio. He had a successful law practice in Chicago. He was very active in the abolitionist movement. He had some very famous people stay with him, like Dwight L. Moody, 
who in Europe became very famous an evangelist. He was a Presbyterian church elder. He was a very dedicated Christian and very active. He very much led a life that people would desire. He had the comforts of this life, everything going for him, very dedicated to the Lord, charmed life. Everything was going their way until 1870 when their faith would be tested. First of all, their young son, four-year-old Horatio, he died of scarlet fever. Then the following year, a few months before October, he'd invested a lot. He was a very wealthy man. He invested a lot of his wealth into real estate on the shore of Lake Michigan. But a few months later in October, the great Chicago fire broke out and destroyed much of Chicago and wiped out much of his holdings. Then in 1873, two years later, his wife's health began to fail. They hoped to put the loss of their little boy who had passed away three years earlier behind them. They had decided they would plan a trip to Europe. He had always wanted to go to Europe, but he was invited by D.L. Moody because D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey had become well-known as evangelists, and he wanted to go over to serve the Lord. Intentions to serve God, and they were conducting revivals over there, and they invited him to come. And they had planned to leave in November on their voyage to Europe, but as sometimes things would happen, God had other plans. Spafford, the day that they were to sail, there was an emergency business issue that he had to stay behind, and he sent his family ahead, his daughters, his wife. They planned to follow on another ship in a few days. November 27, 1873, that steamer ship on which his wife and daughters were on, they were struck by a British iron sailing ship. And it sank within 12 minutes into the Atlantic Ocean. Only 81 of the 307 passengers and cruise members survived. The mother was picked up from the floating debris by the crew of the Lochern. She was taken to Wales. There's a little memoir you can probably find on the internet, I read about it, in which she had clung to her little daughter, youngest one, just a young toddler. But the debris in the water would bash against her arms, it would wound them, and she lost her grip, watched her daughter float away. Her other two daughters, the story goes as well. There was a young man who was in the water and he found her older two daughters and helped them to cling to some debris for a while until the cold overcame them and they slipped into their death in the water. They had lost all four daughters and Anna from Wales telegraphed back to her husband, saved alone, what shall I do? What shall I do? Horatio left Chicago without delay in order to bring his wife home and sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. The captain of the ship said 
careful reckoning that had been made, and I believe we're now passing over the place where their ship had been wrecked. The water is three miles deep. That night, alone in his cabin, Horatio Spafford penned the words, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down. In mid-ocean, the water's three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs, unquote. After Anna was rescued, a pastor heard her say, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. She remembered that a friend had said to her these words, It's easy to be grateful and good when you have so much, but take care that you are not a fair-weathered friend to God. It's easy to be grateful when things are good, when you have so much, but take care that you are not a fair-weathered friend to God. Is that what we are? Fair-weathered friend to God when things are going well. Horatio Spafford penned, when peace like a river tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. I asked Vincent and Amos on the phone yesterday when they were speaking of their mother who was about to pass away, whether or not she had peace. I said, yeah, they think she has peace. She will go home to be with the Savior soon. She has peace. Would you be able to sing, It is well with my soul? No matter what it would be, or would it be a fair-weather fan of God? Christ promises his disciples he's going to leave them, but he's not going to leave them alone. He will give them the Holy Spirit. He will give them the love of the Father, and he comforts them with those words, but he will give them peace no matter what happens in their life. And that is the same promise to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the many good things that you have given to us. And we give you thanks, too, for the challenges and the difficulties of this life. For you bring both blessings and you permit calamities to come upon us that we might rest in you. And Father, you know the hearts that are here. Some are worried and anxious, facing anxieties, an unknown future. What will happen? Anxieties related to health, or their family, or their children, or their marriage, or their job. Whatever fear, O God, may be shaking, we pray, God, that you would grant a peace that transcends all understanding, that will guard their hearts and their minds in you. In Jesus' name, amen.